Welcome to 76 West, a podcast of the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan, featuring talks from the JCC's Conversation Series, a marquee program of the Lambert Center for Arts and Ideas. This podcast is brought to you by Zabars and Zabars.com. Today we'll be listening to a discussion between Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times writer Thomas Friedman and CEO and author Dove Seidman, moderated by JCC Executive Director Rabbi Joy Levitt. The divisive effects of today's political climate and the breakdowns in truth and trust seem beyond what we've previously experienced. When our country's divided into us and them, what happens to the fundamental American value of we the people? What's the impact on our country? And as Rabbi Levitt asks our guests, what about those of us who want change? What do we do in this climate? This talk was recorded November 27, 2017, and was presented in conjunction with the JCC's Joseph Stern Center for Social Responsibility. I hope you enjoy it. Good evening. So as you have heard, the JCC has placed social responsibility, the idea that we have an absolute stake in the way that our country lives up to its promise as a free democracy, front and center for what we do here. We're here tonight because the two of you do a lot of thinking and speaking on this issue. And we want to use your language, Dove, and language you've quoted, Tom, to take a pause here, something we don't do very much. We certainly don't do very much in New York. We don't do much in our culture anymore. Take a pause as we launch this new center to understand where we are, how we got here, and what we can as a community do to strengthen our democracy and its precious institutions, which right now we really feel are at risk. So Tom, I want to start with you with a column that you wrote in June, which, which caused us to ask you to join us tonight called, Where Did We the People Go? When asked, and perhaps this is a strange question to ask an optimist, but when asked what you fear the most these days, you answered with two thoughts. I fear we are seeing the end of truth, that we simply can't agree on the basic facts, and that sectarianism, you described us as Sunnis and Shias, I think, Democrats and Republicans, um, that sectarianism is now infecting us. So that was almost six months ago. Is that what you still fear the most? And tell us why. Uh, well, first of all, Joy, thank you for having us here. Uh, I know I speak for Dove and myself. What a treat it is to be at this great institution. So thank you. And uh, this is such an important subject. Uh, yeah, I've, I've been, uh, I felt it then, I feel it now, you know, I've, I've been on kind of a, uh, an emotional journey myself, which is the subtext of my, of my new book, really, that is that uh, I, I covered the um, uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, the Middle East, their world, you know, really since uh, I was sent out to Beirut in 1979. And um, uh, about 10 years ago, I looked back at my career and the things that I had supported um, Camp David, Oslo, Arab Spring, democracy in Iraq. And um, I, I kind of realized that if this were American baseball, I was batting zero, zero, zero. Um, 
uh, <clears throat> all the things I really wanted for that part of the world had, um, uh, had failed. And so uh, it, it, psychologically, I kind of came home to America. And I, I wrote a book uh, in 2011 with um, uh, Michael Mandelbaum from Johns Hopkins and um, called uh, That Used to Be Us, How America Lost Its Way in the World It Invented and How We Can Come Back. So I really, I said, okay, enough for the Middle East. I, I'm really gonna bring my, my, my game home and think about nation building at home. I really coined that term, you know, that really focus on America. And then I woke up one day and looked around and realized that um, the Middle East had followed me here. Um, uh, that we were becoming as tribalized as the people I ran away from. Uh, they called them Sunnis and Shiites. We called them Democrats and Republicans. But um, I would literally hear people in Washington say, I, I'm going to a dinner party and I hope none of them will be there. <laughs> and the them they were talking about was not someone of a different race or religion, bad enough, uh, but now someone of a, just a different political party. And so uh, basically what I did, Joy, is I, I decided actually to go home. Uh, uh, literally home to the roots of my optimism, the little town in Minnesota where I grew up um, called St. Louis Park. And I went back, first of all, to see um, whether I just made it all up, you know, whether I, I just remembered it in a gauzy, you know, way, um, or whether there really was something very special there, you know. So I, I grew up in this little town called St. Louis Park. It was Located for us and for those of us who think, you know, the Steinberg cartoon mm -hmm. of where mm -hmm. yes, the yeah. world ends and mm. now um, I know who, how old you all are, those right. of you who <laughs> laughed at that joke. <clears throat> so as, uh, the short story is the Jewish community in Minneapolis. Um, Minneapolis was the capital of anti-Semitism in the 30s and 40s uh, in America. Um, uh, my parents couldn't join AAA, you know, you couldn't get into any club. Uh, city government was particularly rife with anti-Semitism until Hubert Humphrey became mayor. And he really cleaned it out of city government and a real hero in our house. And after the war, the, the Jews had all lived in a ghetto in the north side of the city with African-Americans, and not because we were integrated there, because we were both isolated there. And then after the war, um, uh, the, the Jews were able to get out, and they all moved to one town, the one town that didn't have restricted covenants, uh, who you could sell a house for, and had a housing stock that could take them all. And that was this place called St. Louis Park. So overnight, this community that was 100% white, Protestant, Catholic, Scandinavian, overnight became 20% Jewish, 80% white, Protestant, Catholic, Scandinavian. So as I said in the book, if Sweden and Israel had a baby, it would be St. Louis Park. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, uh, and we had a, I, I wrote about this, uh, this amazing um, uh, experience of inclusion really, that, that we went through to learn how to live together. Uh, these really, for the most part, incredibly pluralistic Swedes, these neurotic Jews. We, we called ourselves the, the frozen chosen, uh, the Jewish community of Minnesota. And, um, uh, and, um, and I tell the story about how we all got to know each other. Um, and so this was a freaky uh, uh, town I grew up in because I actually went to Hebrew school with, went to the same high school, grew up in the same neighborhood with the Cohn brothers. Um, uh, the filmmakers, Al Franken, uh, Norm Ornstein, uh, Michael Sandel, the political theorist, Sharon uh, uh, Isbin, the guitarist, uh, Peggy Ornstein, the author, Alan Wiseman. The, so the cold we weather produces yeah. great minds. So What's was, the uh, common well, actually, there's thread some, there? There's something to it, and it's a good, I think, segue to, to Dove, you know, which is that uh, when you grow up in one of these really harsh environments, actually, you know, one day your car stuck in the snow, the next day your neighbor's car stuck in the snow, you really learn uh, to to uh, to uh, there's a there's a civic ethic that you really learn and 
Uh, it's this thing I talk about in the book called Minnesota Nice. You know, you have to have been to Minnesota to appreciate. But but it's really a, a deep civic ethic. That's why corporate social responsibility was born in Minneapolis, um, uh, and uh, the it was mandated that the uh, top companies there all had to give five percent of uh, their uh, uh, gross revenues to the community. So I grew up in a really powerful civic uh, place, and it affected all of us. We all took it in the world, into the world. The Coen Brothers into film. I took it into journalism. Frankie took it into politics. Norm Ornstein took it into politics. Michael Sandel took it into political theory. So you know, when I wrote *Beer to Jerusalem*, one of the points I made: you know, every, when you're a foreign correspondent, everyone comes with a certain lens. And the lens I brought to Beirut, and I was there 1979 to 1984, so I was there for years five through 10 of the Lebanese Civil War, was someone who came from a really strong community, watching a community okay. break down. That was the lens I brought. It was a Minnesota boy goes to Beirut and sees a community breakdown. That's why when we came back to America, I went to public school, my wife went to public school, we sent our kids to public school because we actually lived in a country where everyone sent their kids to confessional schools and we saw what happened. So uh, what's going on now is deeply alien to me. Um, I have a lot of uh, conservative readers, I cherish them. Um, uh, I, I, want, I want to be read by everybody. I want to be challenged by people, but I, it's very important to me to be read by everybody. I don't want people to see my name and say, don't want to read that, know what he's going to say. You know? Um, and that just comes from where I am, and where, where I was, and the journey I was on. And is the town of your dreams the same as it was? Oh, that's a very is, good question. when you yeah. go back there, did, I mean, Minnesota's a blue state, right? Yeah. They ha is it a diverse community? Are people the way they were, as you recall? So I, I tell the story in the book. What happened was I, I, um, uh, the, the, I have two chapters at the end of the book. The first is about growing up there at the time and uh, how we all got to know each other. And, and this thing called Minnesota Nice, you know, I tell the story, I was back home working on the book and my friend Jay Goldberg um, came home where I was at a wedding um, and he came to the wedding, he sat down with me, he told me his wife Eileen had been driving on the ring road around Minneapolis that day and a driver almost drove her off the road. And she came home and said, Jay, I was so mad I almost honked. Um, <laughs> So that's, that's Minnesota for road rage. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so, um, actually, there was a Jewish mafia in Minnesota um, back in the 30s and 40s, led by a gangster named Kid Can. And my dad grew up with these guys. He wasn't in the mafia, I swear. But uh, when I was five or six, my dad came home one day and, and told me that um, one of his best friends had been sent to jail, I mean, a dear friend. And when you're a five or six-year-old kid and your dad knows someone who went to jail, like that was just freaked me out. And which is why I never forgot what he said when I said, Dad, what did he do? And he said he was, uh, Sonny was shopping in a store before it was open. Um, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's Minnesota for breaking and entering. Um, so, so I came back, so that, then I come back 40 years, I left Minnesota in 1971 to discover the world. And I came back 40 years later to write this book and found that the world had discovered St. Louis Park. Uh, Nama High School is 50% uh, um, uh, white Protestant Catholic Scandinavian. It's 10% Jewish. It's 10% Latino now and 30% Somali. Because uh, the same little town that took the Jews took the Somalis. Um, it's a radical place. The Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, was about our Hebrew school. It was about our little town. Oh, I'm so, so um, sorry to yeah, hear that. Yeah, so, it's, uh, so now, now the, the uh, uh, inclusion challenge is much deeper 
and wider, both racially and religiously. And I tell the story of how they're doing, and they're actually doing amazingly well. My high school is still the fifth-rated high school in the state of Minnesota. But it's a struggle. It's really hard. But isn't that the struggle of the world? Yeah. And isn't that the struggle of, of America? We, we are being thrown together now, you know. And we are all meeting one another, and, um, uh, and we're having to learn to, uh, to bridge these differences. And, you know, it, what's tragic is, is we went from a president who really embraced and rose to that challenge to one who really wants to um, really create fracture, who literally wants to uh, propel himself by, by actually dividing people. And so, um, you know, there, there's no good time in my view. I'm a opinion columnist, so I say whatever I want. Um, I, um, I, I'm, I'm paid to do that. Yeah, we so. know nothing about right. saying whatever right. we want here. <laughs> so Go right ahead. There was no good time to have a president who wanted to divide people, but now is a uniquely bad time. So we're going to come back to that, yeah. but um, Dove, uh, we've known each other a while. It's safe to say I know you didn't grow up in Minnesota. No. Um, in fact, you mostly grew up in Israel, and the opposite of Minnesota, right? Um, so I'm curious, from your perspective, since I assume, as in this and many other things, you and Tom agree, um, how do we get into this mess, and how do we get out of it? So. Um I, too, am happy to, to be here, and I speak for my wife, Maria, who's on the board of the JCC, but I want to publicly thank you for when we moved to New York seven years ago, you made this our first home. So uh, I'm, I'm at home in a very vibrant, special community, thanks to you. So uh, how do we get into this mess? And we've been in messes before, and we've been divided before, uh, but I'm particularly concerned. Um, Never in history has an individual had so much potent power to be a force for good or harm uh, at his or her fingertips. Uh, in just a short time, we've gone from connected to interdependent with one click, the hopes, the dreams, the plights, the anguish, the behavior of any one person so far away could be felt viscerally and directly and seen in full living color on a screen in our handhelds. That's a reality that we're not um, used to. And these unprecedented forces aren't just uh, dramatically changing the world, they're reshaping it. Uh, it functions different and it's been reshaped faster than we've reshaped ourselves as individuals, our institutions, our models of leadership and community. And, what, uh, and our basis of coming together in a shared association is itself being assaulted because these unprecedented forces uh, are assaulting what Tom and I talked about, the twin pillars uh, that form the foundation of a vibrant uh, democracy, of a dynamic capitalism, of a healthy society, let alone shared humanity. Without truth and trust, uh, we can't have those things. Uh, not just scientific truth, that reality accords uh, with truth, but moral truth. Uh, we and we the people is a moral idea it, that uh, we hold these truths to be self-evident, That, for example, that we're all created equal, equally. So when these truths are being assaulted, uh, our very foundations um, really start to crumble before our eyes. Now truth and trust have been eroded uh, before. I think what's different this time is these technological forces allow any one of us to publish our own truths, even lies, and to do so in a way that they can undermine real truths. 
um, and then amplify them. And I think we've never lived in a time where we are so morally aroused that either we are finding ourselves in comfortable echo chambers where we only hear people like ourselves, or we are so outraged that we don't even see the humanity uh, of the other. Um, and these forces are eroding truth and trust, and they're eroding authority itself because we can now look into the innermost workings of organizations, into their culture, into their values, into their norms, into the character and mindset of everybody in charge, and we don't tend to like what we see, how they're making money, how they're making decisions, how they're treating people, uh, and then we can spread and amplify that which we don't like, and it's landed us in a situation where we have a full-blown, not economic crisis, Joy, but a moral crisis of truth and trust, but authority itself. We simply don't trust institutions of authority. And so I think that's are, we, sort of the are we less moral, or do we just now know that we're not moral? I, I don't think that some of the immorality that some of us think we're experiencing was born overnight. More of it is illuminated and revealed. More of it feels permission and comfort to be out in the open, where maybe before... Uh, it didn't feel so comfortable. I don't think uh, 30, 40 million bigots were created in the last election. Um, maybe some feel more comfortable manifesting and personifying it. But I do think, and this gives me some hope, and I think we're experiencing this today, the world is trying to bend, I think, itself towards more morality. And to the extent some of us feel like things are less moral, it might be relative to a sense of higher standards. People want higher standards of accountability, especially from those in charge and leadership. So I think relative to our sense of where it needs to go, given how interdependent the world is, the more we rise and fall together, the more on top of each other. I mean, you can take a handheld today, and with it's not just migration and immigration. With one swipe, strangers are coming into intimate proximity. I can do this, and... Airbnb, I'm in someone's home. I can do this, and a handyman or masseuse is, is, in our, is in our home, or we're getting into strangers' cars. We've never had technology take strangers and bring them in an accelerated basis into intimacy. So I think we realize that we're living in this reshaped world, and I think there's a subliminal sense that standards need to go higher, and relative to those, uh, it feels like we have a long way to go. So I want to come back to the technology question, but Tom, I want to, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the leadership that you alluded to. Has this country rejected leadership? Rejected leadership. Um, I mean, we had, as you said, eight years of, of um, quiet on the corruption front, right? Squeaky queen, clean, uh, picture-perfect family, a person who, whether you agreed with him or not, argued, used moral language when he spoke. We, this election was a rejection of that? Is that a way to read that? How do you... Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I, 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 I must remember Hillary Clinton won three million more votes. Um, so we just... Speak now, why does that not make answer. me feel better? Um, it's, uh, <laughs> We have an electoral college, you know, so um, uh, I don't think that it's, um, um, I, I think this election was a solar lunar eclipse. Um, everything had to be in exactly the right position for it to end Comey, Anthony Weiner, computer, you know, I mean, just everything had to go exactly the right way for, for Trump to have won. And 
there is such a debasement of of uh, of public life for reasons that Dov and I have been talking about uh, in in uh, together in, in in our appearances, which is that um, you know Dov likes to say this 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 thing here. This is a this actually it looks like a cell phone. It's actually a portable MRI machine. Okay, I can look inside of anyone here, and then I can see pretty deeply inside you. And then when I flip it over. It actually turns into a global megaphone. I can tell people what I see without an editor, a libel lawyer, or a filter. And um, what that does is a lot of, I think, pernicious things. I mean, um, you know, if you're any kind of public figure in, in whatever realm you're in, it's really scary out there, you know, um, because, uh, you know, I, I was once, um, I was teaching a course at Harvard, actually, this was 70 years ago with, with Larry Summers and Michael Sandel. And uh, I was flying back from Logan Airport to, to Washington at the end of class. And I, I went to get some magazines at the newsstand. And I got them. And I walked to the cash register. And there's a woman coming the other way. And honestly, I, I thought I got there first. Um, and I, I, I put the magazines down. And she said, excuse me, I was here first. And all I could think of was, ma'am, can I buy your magazines? Can I shine your shoes? Can I buy your dinner? Just don't tweet about me, blog about me, tweet, you know what I mean? Wow. Uh, Instagram me, you know what wow. I mean? Um, and so I'm, I'm just totally at song in Chicago cellophane. Like when I'm in public, I am just cellophane. Um, so what that is doing, you know, I think is really inhibiting uh, a lot of people. You know, people sometimes ask me if I would like to go into government. I say I would I'd really like to go into government. I'd actually like to have a very high position, very high position. Um, uh, <laughs> we would too just, like just, you to have that. Just, uh, thank you. But uh, just one, one condition, I get to keep my column at the New York Times. <laughs> I, I pity anyone in public life who doesn't have a column in the New York Times to define and defend themselves. And um, because there are just so many people out there. And what that does is, I really think it's 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 narrowed leaders. Everyone's looking at their Twitter feed, you know, um, uh, and and just worrying all the time about what they are saying about you. So you know, I'm 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 notorious for I never looked at Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. So whatever y'all saying about me out there, y'all have a good time. Um, uh, but I have the luxury of having a column in the New York Times. You know, so I'm keenly aware of that. You know, that not everyone. And how much hate you know, mail do you get? Uh, I wouldn't know because I don't read it. I don't look at it. I don't look at the comments. I don't look at anything. Um, uh, I, I've, I've always taken the view that, I mean, I've been written seven books. I've written a gazillion columns. And I have never in my life responded to a critic. Um, and my attitude is I can either spend my time reacting to you or writing my next book or writing my next column. And my view of life is, and you shall know them by their books, not by their <laughs> blogs, not by their tweets. You shall know them by their books. So I'm incredibly disciplined about that. And I, I but people will come up to me and say things to me sometimes. Say, boy, you got lit up on Twitter today. And I say, really? You know, how, how many tweets? <laughs> and um, uh, they'd say, God, there must have been seven or eight. Seven or eight, seven or eight people stopped me at the airport, OK, to say, I really like what you're doing. So we've got, this thing is so out of whack now. Yeah. Because you think it's, it's global, that you think it's going global. And then you start tailoring everything to that. And I, I find it's just incredibly corrosive of public life. And so I just don't go there at all. Whatever you're all saying about me, um, uh, I, I'm just, my attitude is that, you know, that at the end of the day, you are what you do. So I can't tell you my column is better than it was. I can't tell you my book is better than it was. 
you either build a diamond hard reality around yourself, and if so, no amount of criticism really sticks, or you don't, and no amount of spinning is going to save you. So you might as well focus on that. And um, Doug will Do tell you, work. I'm very disciplined yeah. about that. You know, I mean, I yeah. just, uh, because, but unfortunately, the, we have a lot of leaders today. Like, I gave up my congressional pass. Um, uh, uh, I would sooner actually thumb through the first 50 names in the DC phone book than go to Congress um, uh, to have an intelligent conversation about anything. Because um, uh, what is, if, if you ever interviewed a They're con- all tweeting that out, that's right, right that's as right. we speak. Go right ahead, you know. Uh, I mean, interviewing a congressman or a senator, is, is, it, it's sort of like this. Uh, uh, you know, Senator, what do you, or you'll be the journalist, I'm the senator. You say, well, you know, uh, what do you think about this issue? You say, you know, Joy, I'm, that issue is, re- excuse me just one second, Joy. Yeah, would you get back to Adelson? I'll be calling him about that fundraising thing. Yeah, now, no, what did you say, Joy? What is that? Um, uh, yeah, no, and you can raise a very important point. Excuse me one second. Did you get a tweet out on that? You know, did you get a tweet? <laughs> and by the time you're done, you just say, oh, what am I here for? What am, what, what am I doing here? You know what I mean? And so I don't respond to any of these people. They invite me. I, I don't want to talk to them because they aren't really engaged in a serious conversation. Everything is now just, uh, Dove has talked, the age of distraction. You know, we're just distracted by everything all the time. And um, it's just, so I think it's very hard to lead when, when, when you're that way. And then, then you have a president who's feeding the whole thing. Um, uh, and it's a real problem. I'm actually doing my column for, for Wednesday about this because uh, I, I called uh, Trump at an interview. Um, uh, 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 he's a he's a brain-eating disease, and I and I called him that um, because as a as a commentator, you have a choice. You can either react to everything he does, and every day he does something. Pocahontas today, maybe this evening it'll be something else, and and you can either react to that because you feel if I don't react to it, then I'm normalizing it, but if you do react to it, you stop reporting learning and teaching. And so and so the one day your readers are going to wake up and say Venezuela what what happened in Venezuela? You know, and that's because and so I am bound and determined I was just in India and Saudi Arabia because of this I'm bound and determined not to wake up after 4 years and look at all I've done is rail against Donald Trump. He's not going to own my brains for 4 years, you know. So, so um, thank you. Seventy Six West is brought to you by Zabar's and Zabar's.com. In 1934, Lewis and Lillian Zabar opened a shop along Broadway at 80th Street on New York's Upper West Side. Lewis was a stickler for quality, roasting his own coffee and personally visiting smokehouses to sample and inspect fish, rejecting far more than he accepted. Today, Lewis's principles and practices continue to guide Zabar's. Respect the customer. Never ever stint on quality offer fair value. And last but not least, keep searching for the new and wonderful. Be sure to visit Zabar's store on 80th and Broadway or visit zabars.com for mouthwatering specialties like bagels, babka, rugelach, smoked fish, and of course, world famous caviar. Zabar's ships to all 48 contiguous United States plus Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. So there's no reason your friends can't enjoy the fresh homemade taste of Zabar's any day of the week. So let's talk about technology because you both write a lot about it. We uh, had a strategic planning 
uh, committee meeting here, and we had a technology expert um, talk to us about technology here at the JCC, Maria Seidman. I think she's here in the audience. And she told me that teenagers today spend 40% less time face-to-face -face than their parents did and that there is a correlation between that and increased loneliness and alienation. And yet, neither one of you has ever written a column that says we shouldn't have technology. We should bury it in a, in a cave somewhere and start all over again, right? Thoreau said that in the pause, we hear the call. I mean, we're, we're being assaulted by technology that we can't even hear our, our inner voice. And it's hard to do something meaningful out there if we're not in touch with who we are and what we stand for. And as machines are starting to encroach more in our lives than machines, uh, there's nothing more human than pausing, not to just get our head out of the game, but to reflect on the situation we're in or the world we're living in, or to reconnect with uh, our beliefs or to rethink some assumption and then reimagine a better email, a better tweet, a better conversation. There is no ethics and morality that is not enabled and preceded by a pause. If you don't pause to be conscious of the effects of your decisions on others, you won't get them right. So um, it might be the most counterintuitive thing I'll say tonight. The faster the world gets, uh, my advice is not to speed up and try to run alongside it. But actually, technology is going to keep going. Uh, we can talk more about that later, but uh, we need to pause more and have deep pauses. Or around here, we call that Shabbat. Uh, right? Well, there's wisdom in, in Shabbat, and some people are trying to take uh, digital pauses, but we have to also pause in stride. We have to pause in a conversation. We have to ask a question and not just always give the answer. Um, you are so about scaling and fostering community. What a leader needs to do today is actually create a context and a space for others to pause so they too could remain rooted in what we're trying to do. There's no community without collective group uh, pauses. Uh, we live at a time where technology is not going to slow down, I, I, and you can't divorce oneself from the idea that technology is bringing more people out of poverty. It's allowing more people to plug and play. I mean, we can have a whole conversation about how technology is being used to fight cancer and, and do so many good things. It's a force for good or bad, but it's about how we use it and how we let it into our lives uh, and how leaders um, allow it to take hold uh, in that way. But I think what's, if Barack Obama was the internet president and the medium was information, this last election was the social media election. And social media really is known for the prevalence of video. So we now are not just hearing about things and reading about things. We're seeing police chokeholds. We are seeing riots. Uh, we are experiencing, we see the picture of a baby Syrian boy wash up on shore. And I actually think we're living in a state right now of such moral arousal. And I'm using that term on purpose. Um, we are aroused because we're going from one image to the other of something that is just really coming at us. And moral arousal expresses itself often in the form of outrage. Now, outrage could be a force for good or bad. There are some things are truly outrageous, and we should get in their way. But outrage can also repress, because I could be outraged that you're outraged, and then I'm outraged that you're outraged that I'm outraged. <laughs> and what's happening right now is we're going from outrage to where's my apology? Where's my demand? And anytime you go from outrage 
to demand, fire that person, take their award away, tear down a statue with his name on it, give me an apology. You might get somebody fired. You might get a statue torn down, but you will make no progress. Because the third most important step between having the right moral response, outrage, and a demand is the conversation. Joy, in every conversation we have, you say, lahavdil, lahavdil. Right? Moral inquiry is about distinctions and nuance and having conversation and pausing. And if you skip this and you go right from outrage to a demand, you will make zero progress in society. And technology is what's allowing us to go from this to that. I don't know if the uh, Tennessee yesterday announced the hiring of a new football coach, Shiano. They signed a contract and it got leaked that he's going to be the new football coach. Somebody got word of this and went on social media and started to spread a rumor that 25 years ago when he was on the coaching staff of Penn State University, this is triple hearsay, somebody said that he said that he said that he knew something that Sandusky uh, was abusing young boys, okay? So they spread a tweet about him that he was an enabler of ch child rape. Within hours, they took his contract away and he's no longer the coach. The Pennsylvania prosecutors looked into this back then. This is 25 years ago. And the two people that said that they said that they said that they said have actually said that they didn't say what they said that they said. <laughs> and he said that he never said what they said that they said that he said. But nonetheless, they took his job away yesterday because technology allowed us to spread that. So technology is going to do what it's going to do. Uh, but we need to pause and go through this part. Uh, and there was nobody that stood up, not a university president, not a local official, and that which gets us back to that leadership question. Because, because that may all happen, but if there's somebody in that town that says, wait a second, Right. So here's my question. I love that column in the um, in the New York Times. Actually, I just love the New York Times, but I love that column in the New York Times um, in the book review where um, an author is asked, you know, you're at a dinner party and you can invite, you know, whoever you want, living or dead to the to the party. So I want to ask that question about leadership. If you could invite Tom. Um, any leader or leaders, past or present, to guide us right now, who would they be? Well, you know, obviously for me it would be Abe Lincoln um, because of uh, he came along at such a critical time in our country's history and had to really um, make this incredible call to uh, both preserve the Union and to end slavery. And the Civil War was about that and, and showed such courage, and that courage earned him that, um, uh, unfortunately, his, his assassination. Um, but uh, I, I just want to pick up on the pausing thing for a second. Um, I, uh, this summer, I took the most really remarkable trip I've, I've ever taken, uh, maybe as a journalist. It was really one of the great all-time trips. And that's and I've taken some great trips in 40 years. Um, uh, the, the head of the US Air Force invited me to come with him on a trip uh, to visit all the US air bases in the Middle East. So we went to Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Kurdistan, Kuwait, Qatar, Abu Dhabi. Uh, it's just a remarkable uh, experience. And um, it was remarkable for two reasons um, for me. Uh, uh, the first is that we were, when we were in, um, in uh, uh, the U.S. air base in Qatar, which is the biggest air base that we have overseas, uh, so we were staying on the bases, we were staying in barracks, you know, whatnot. So I'd get up early some mornings, I'd go eat breakfast by myself in the mess. 
And I uh, went down to the mess hall and uh, I was just having my breakfast and three air women um, sat down at the table next to me and I, and I noticed one of them was, uh, uh, she was saying grace over her breakfast of cereal and fruit. It was very obvious, very dignified you know, by herself. And then um, we finished the trip, I came home, I had to speak in Birmingham, I did a community thing there. And I have a very good friend in Birmingham who hosted a dinner for me um, uh, with the sort of mayor who's African-American there and sort of town leaders. And um, it was at his house. And, and before we began, he said, uh, I would like to say grace. And he was very non-denominational, just really. And um, I came home, I told my wife Anne about it. It was something very beautiful about both of those moments. It, it was inclusive, brought everybody together. Uh, it was a pause. Um, and it connected us to values, values of gratitude, of community, uh, and, and let's say of, of inclusion. And I was saying to Anne afterwards that, you know, I actually don't know anybody in my life who says grace. But I bet half of America says grace, you know, um, or a big part of this country. And, um, and I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about that. Um, and and I, I want to say grace more, you know. Um, it's... it's, it's it, it, I want to connect with the people around me. I really brought that up at Thanksgiving this year. I, I want to push you a little bit on this grace thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm a rabbi, I'm a religious person. The rabbis had an idea that you should say 100 blessings a day precisely for the pause, precisely because you need to acknowledge before you're doing something that, that it's grace, right? You don't do anything particularly to deserve that bread that's on the table. But a, a, a large number of those people that say grace in all of these traditions, they say grace and then they go out and they're bigots, right? And they behave badly, right? Is that question of the correlation between religious ritual and they and that see like when we look at it as outsiders to it it looks so sweet but i wonder is it well it, i think it is entirely dependent as as your question suggests on everything else it's what you do it's right. what dove said it's what you do in and with the pause you know and the values in part there but to to pick up on something Dove said, and again, it's why my book is called Thank You for Being Late, is that it actually celebrates everything old and slow. So I really believe the faster the world gets, um, uh, the more the things that really matter are all the things you cannot download. They're all the things you have to upload the old-fashioned way. Good parenting to good child, good teacher to good student, good bureaucrat to good citizen, good preacher to good flock. That, and those values, you cannot download, you have to impart them face-to-face, one-on-one -on -one often, you know, um, uh, but in a very human way. And I think that, um, you know, the internet is an open sewer of untreated, unfiltered information. It's full of diamonds and rubies and golden nuggets. And it's full of broken glass, rusty nails, and really, really jagged cans. And if we don't build the internal filters into our kids and citizens, who are now gonna be interacting, really living their lives through that thing um, to filter out the gold and the rubies and the diamonds from the broken glass and, and, and jagged cans, we're gonna have a real problem. And that is not something you can download. You've gotta upload that the old fashioned way. You've, you've just made the argument for this building and this community. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a good segue to 
3,000 people. I want to yep. talk about my leader, though, too. Though. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Who, you, who would you invite Just to dinner? A, I would say Nelson Mandela. And, and I don't say that to be cliche. He had a 27-year pause. 27 years. I mean, you think of Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. He had a pause. That was a forced pause. 27 years in jail. What did he go through that he could emerge from jail? I, we would have understood his need to exact revenge, but he transcended that. We would have understood his need to and desire to appoint an all-black government. But his model of leadership was so transcendent that he had such a vision of being a purveyor of hope um, that he wanted to take the South African people on a journey that that's what made him uh, a moral leader. And, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is to make, I think, a really important point because you're about to talk about the building and community. There is no community without leaders that can frame community, help us foster community, uh, help frame conversations that need to take place in a community. And the same technological, there is no world without authority. I am really happy that when our children went to this school, there were teachers in charge of the classroom. I'm happy that football coaches are in charge of a team, that we have a commander in chief, that we have CEOs. There is no world without positions of formal authority. Society won't work. But what makes any system really work is when individuals with moral authority occupy these positions of formal authority. Now, in the past, before forced transparency, somebody was CEO, we might have said, uh, the CEO of Miramax, there goes a great man. How else did he get the job? Or that CEO must be a great man. Or why else did the board appoint? And usually it was him. So we may be over-imputed moral authority, but today we're seeing the distinction between formal authority and moral authority, and there's a vacuum. And formal authority uh, can be seized. It can be won in an election. A Silicon Valley CEO can lock it up with some supermajority shares. Uh, but moral authority has to be earned by who you are and how you behave and how you lead and how you engender trust or you erode it. Um, and it's spherical. You could have it for the JCC and the community beyond. You could, the Pope could have it for the whole Catholic Church and people. But the hard, the moral, formal authority you can get overnight, and moral authority takes a lot of hard work over time. And I think that's the biggest challenge of our age, this vacuum of moral authority, uh, that we don't have enough individuals with moral authority occupying all the positions of power. And I think what we're seeing right now is a real revolution and disruption of authority. Uh, and there's a yearning to get individuals to go on a journey to build the moral authority to occupy those positions. And to me, Nelson Mandela was a great example of that. You know, Delvin, I did a, a column a while back that, you know, about, about the movie Invictus, which was the Hollywood version of, of the Nelson Mandela story. And it's about that moment right after he takes the presidency and the uh, uh, sports minister comes to him and says we want to change the name of the rugby team uh, from, from the from the Springboks to uh, something more authentically African because there was an all almost all white team and um, uh, and Mandela said no we're not going to do that he, uh, but my favorite line he, he tells in the, the sports minister uh, in the movie was an ANC colleague of his we have to surprise them Right. So, was, and that to me is so much about leadership. Is it, that, yeah, but it's not time? necessarily moral authority, right? It's strategic smarts. Uh, I would say it's, it's a little of both. It's how you build moral authority mm -hmm. when you do something hard. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you saw anybody do something hard? Yeah. When was the last time you saw Bibi Netanyahu do something hard? Right. Um, uh, you know, I mean, moral, um, moral leaders know the difference. So 
a true you're moral not, leader. You don't really want to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. I know the answer. But moral yeah. leaders know what you can inspire and what you can command. I mean, we saw that play out with Trump and Comey. A formal leader might demand loyalty. You must be loyal to me. Uh, so if I have a subordinate, I could demand honesty. You must always tell me the truth. But I can't say you must be loyal to me. So true moral leaders know what they can inspire and what they can demand. And what played out between President Trump and Comey is he was demanding loyalty. And Comey said, actually, I'm going to be loyal to the Constitution. But what I will give you is honesty. And if you ask someone for their loyalty, what they should say, no, I'll give you my honesty. And if you ask someone for their honesty, they'll give you their loyalty. So moral leaders know what they must inspire and what they can command. Uh, moral leaders are virtue animated. They make sacrifices. They're able to put others before themselves. They're able to manifest courage. But they're also preoccupied with fairness and justice and right and wrong. In conversations, they don't say, whose call is it? They go, what's the right call? They, if they have power, they don't end a conversation by saying, what's your answer? They might say, sleep on it and tell me tomorrow because they want to show respect. So I don't mean moralizing. Moral leaders don't have to moralize. They just need to understand that their power and their ability to maintain the position has to be rooted in values, has to be animated by principles. It has to be other regarding and not self-regarding. So I, I really need this to be heard. Moral leaders don't have to moralize. They just need to lead from a position of a shared conversation and basis uh, in values. So you both chose people that are no longer alive. Right? I just want to yeah, point that out. That. Yeah. Right? But I do want to talk here about this JCC and, and this agenda. Right? So as I said, 3,000 people walk in here every day. And if you ask them, they'd say they're coming to swim or work out or drop, out, drop their kids off or take a class. But I want to say that they're all coming here to shape lives of meaning and purpose. Um, and connection. So if you could set the agenda for our new center, and with full awareness that we don't have a lot of access to moral leadership, at least on the national level, what are the top um, items on your list, our to-do list, if you will, that would take our greatest assets that I would say are our tradition and its values in our community, and help make our democracy stronger. This is a, a, a fancy way of saying there's a tremendous amount of hopelessness right now, of, of helplessness. Um, what can we do? Well, a couple things come to mind, Joy. One is um, uh, something that uh, the British environmentalist Tom Burke said um, uh, to me when I was writing this book. He said, and I really like this, he said, it's the doing we do together that matters most. And so um, getting people involved in doing together, building community around anything, um, I mean, anything you know, relevant and, and, and of value, obviously, to your institution, the community, I think it's really important. And that's what I tell young people who come to me and say, I'm so despondent. And I just say, build something with somebody. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously, something of, of value. But I think it's the doing we do together. You know. Uh, um, in my book, I have an interview with Vivek Murthy, who the, was the Surgeon General until Trump fired him, um, uh, amazing Indian-American doctor. And um, uh, I was interviewing him, and I said, Vivek, um, what is the most prevalent disease in America today? Is it heart disease, diabetes, or cancer? And he said, it, it, it's none of those, Tom. It's uh, isolation. Um, 
I said, wait a minute, we live in the most connected age in history, and the Surgeon General of the United States is telling me that depression-related isolation is the biggest disease in America today. And that tells me that uh, connecting hearts to hearts uh, is a huge challenge, and I think it's got to be a big part of what you do. And I would say the second thing, um, Joy, is teaching kids digital civics, how to use the internet, how to read the internet, how to horizontally check things. So if they pick up a story and read that the, you know, the Minneapolis Evening Herald uh, says that Tom Friedman was once arrested for shoplifting, the first thing they do is horizontally check, is there even a Minneapolis Evening Herald? Okay, <laughs> rather than say, oh, uh, uh, but Joy, I, 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 I read it on the internet, as if that settles the bar bet, you know. Um, uh, and I think teaching kids digital civics from kindergarten on how to ingest information through this uh, fire hose of, uh, as I said, of rusty cans and golden nuggets, I think it's going to be essential for the future of our democracy. We started with what, what you most fear these days. So what gives you the most hope? Um, well, a lot. First of all, I mean, leadership is not about headlines. It's about trend lines. And autocracy, in my view, is having its last gasp or fight in national politics, from Erdogan to Putin to in our country. It's very top down. You might still control the military, the press. You might be able to hang on to the job unless you do something impeachable. But I'm not seeing many mayors uh, behave this way. I'm not seeing uh, CEOs try to brag about how commanding and controlling they are. So if you step back and you look at kind of large themes as to where it's going long term, um, human progress, there's no Moore's law for human progress. It's not linear. It goes up and down. It's messy. We take detours. But from a macro perspective, I think the world is trying to go towards uh, something better. I am just blown away by the teenagers out there that are changing the world. You know, the Rowan Hansons that can go to DC Comics and say, stop photoshopping pictures of girls, and uh, the Julie uh, Bloom who can go to Coca-Cola and Pepsi and say, I want you to remove carcinogens out of your drinks, and uh, Seventeen Magazine, another uh, <clears throat> young teenager got them to um, start having more pictures of female heroines. I can catalog one young individual after another that is figuring out that this world functions differently uh, and they're not waiting their turn and they have a picture uh, of a better world uh, and they're going after it. I also feel that there is such a vacuum of leadership and as a, somebody that spends a lot of his time in capitalism, uh, Adam Smith, uh, the father of modern capitalism, was not an economist. He was the chairman of the moral philosophy department at Glasgow University. And um, the whole foundation of capitalism, which I think we're returning to, uh, is that business can be a force for good and that old ways of doing business uh, are starting to get crowded out uh, and more leaders are trying to Stop taking the position that that's a political issue, that's a social issue, I just run a business. Business is realizing that it's part of community, it's part of society, uh, and it's starting to rise to the occasion. So I am seeing more young and older individuals understand the world they're living in. Um, we've talked about technology that's doing crazy things in our lives, but you know what else it's doing? It's attacking our fundamental self-conception because we no longer have a monopoly on intelligence. 
Who would have thought that I think, therefore I am, is no longer true of just us? So in the industrial age, we hired brawn, hired hands. Then we went into the knowledge economy, we hired heads. But now machines are starting to not just outlift and produce us, but they're starting to outthink us. And what gives me hope is we're starting to figure out that we're entering a new economy, because an economy is really defined by how people spend their time, how they create value and what they do. And I think we're going from I think therefore I am to I care therefore I am, I feel therefore I am, I love therefore I am, I hope therefore I am. Now, it's also I hate therefore I am, and I'm outraged therefore I am. And just like in the knowledge economy, we didn't organize around idiocy and ignorance, we tried to go for something higher. The challenge of the new age is going to be how do we organize around love and hope and caring uh, and human elevation and not the more banal qualities of humanity. And it's going to take leadership. And I think that's what, what, why you're doing is so important, because community is what makes us most human. Because without community, what would give us hope and meaning? And the fundamental value in the Jewish tradition is having a good heart. Because if you have a good heart, everything else uh, is infused with that. Even grace comes from a, a deep place. So I think we're entering the human economy where we're going to be hiring hearts. And um, that I, gives it, you hope. It gives me hope because I think structurally the world is begging for humans to finally figure out what, what makes us uniquely human in the age of intelligent machines when it's not just our SAT score and how smart we are. And it's going to have to be what makes us human is that we have the one thing a machine does not have a heart. So we should work on how do we scale good hearts and moral hearts and, and virtuous hearts and ethical hearts. And uh, we now have a generation that if you ask them, why is it wrong? You know what they say? It's wrong. I said, why is it wrong? I just know it's wrong. Why is it wrong? It just feels wrong to me. So we now have a generation that is so morally activated and aroused, but they don't have the vernacular and the architecture and the language to root themselves and in deeper argument. And the one thing that religion, say Judaism, or philosophy does for people is teaches us that whether we were ever born there are fundamental truths that are so true that even if I were never on the planet, that's true. And there are ideals that are so big that they're worth pursuing. And I think your center can get a hold of these young people who want to make a difference in the world and give them the strength and the apparatus to argue from deep truths and pursue large ideals so they can transcend the selfie generation of thinking something is wrong because they feel it or they want you to listen to them just because they're angry and go on a journey of making an outward difference. And I think your center can do a lot of good if it uh, scales the heart. Tom, <laughs> other than Minnesota, which is giving me hope. Um, it's a great place. What, what gives you hope? Um, as, uh, it's it's um, uh, that I visited a lot. Of, actually, the biggest sort of speaking, biggest number of speaking requests I get these days is actually to visit communities that are building what I call complex adaptive coalitions to really uh, adapt uh, in this new era. So if you want to be an optimist about America, stand on your head. The country looks so much better from the bottom up than from the top down. And there's a reason for that. Um, so there's this image of America that we're a country divided be between two coasts. So the two coasts are liberalizing, globalizing, modernizing, diversifying. And then there's flyover America where everyone's high in opioids, voted for Trump, and waiting for the return of 1950. 
Um, that's the, the cliche out there. And you only have to actually be from Flyover America to know what nonsense that is. Um, uh, America is actually divided between communities that are falling, collapsing from the bottom down, and communities that are rising from the bottom up. Country's actually a checkerboard of these communities. And they're all over there on the coast, they're in the interior. And uh, I, I did a trip through Appalachia in, um, in June, a car trip. I happened to be invited to speak in Louisville and at our national lab in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And I sort of took out the map and realized, okay, it cuts right through Appalachia. I've never been there before. I did some research. I said, I'm going to take my own car trip through, through Appalachia. And so I started in a town um, in northern Appalachia, southern Indiana, called Austin, Indiana. It's a town of 4,400 people, and 5% of the town's HIV positive. Um, this is, you know, sub-Saharan African rates of epidemic, you know. Uh, this is a town in the middle of America. Short story is the town had uh, two factories, one closed. The other had um, got more automated. A lot of white working class males were rapidly unemployed. And um, they fell into drug abuse. You had son, father, grandfather all shooting up together. Um, uh, this is America. Um, it's, a, it's a terrible story. I went there to interview Will Cook, who is the one doctor in the town, and just to hear his story. And so much of the story was about how the, the, the community broke down. You know. Um, you drive just 40 minutes south, you come to Louisville, Kentucky, on I-70. Uh, Louisville has 30,000 open jobs. Anybody looking for a job? Go to Louisville, okay? So what's going on in Louisville? Well, Louisville's created what I call a, a complex adaptive coalition. Um, and that's taken from nature. Which organisms survive when the climate changes are complex adaptive organisms. Um, and uh, these, these coalitions, I see them all over America now because I, I get invited to talk to them and they're everywhere. Uh, the business community has gotten intimately involved in the public school system, K-12, community college, um, uh, translating in real time the skills, needs, and demands of the global economy now, right into the school system, not waiting for them to figure it out. Uh, then the philanthropic community is coming in with uh, scholarships, supplemental learning programs, uh, after-school programs, internships, uh, and the like. And then the local government's catalyzing it all, and then also hiring global recruiters to go out into the world and find global investors for their local attributes. Uh, Louisville um, is, is the hub of, uh, of uh, UPS. So when Jeff Bezos promises you 24-hour delivery, the way that happens is just fly into Louisville Airport, and you'll see how it happens. Uh, Louisville Airport is a sea of factories. They're called end-of-runway assemblers and manufacturers. So they're literally sitting at the end of the runway waiting for your order, and, and, uh, uh, and they flip it. And um, uh, so you find Louisville Airport, as far as you can see, are just factories. Uh, and they are rising from the bottom up. Does Louisville have problems, opioid crime? Absolutely. It's all about the balance you know, be between the two. What they all have in common is that you've got the, the business community working with the ed education community, working with the civic and philanthropic community, working together with the local government, and all working together at a very high trust level. Another one of my favorite quotes from Dove is that, is that trust is the only legal performance enhancing drug. Okay, so where the, when there's trust in the room, we can go really fast. Trust is like a hard floor. Dove and I, if we were playing basketball, we could jump really high off this floor. The absence of trust is like the Syrian desert. You can't jump a millimeter. And so, it, 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 if I were recommending someone running for president, I, I would tell them to run as a progressive localist. I want to push government down to the highest trust level. They're in Washington, D.C. today, zero trust. What can they accomplish? Zero things. Because they, all the things we need to do are big and hard, tax bill, health care, and you can only do big, hard things together.
So we're trying to do big, hard things alone. That was Thomas Friedman and Dove Seidman talking to the JCC's Rabbi Joy Levitt. Our podcasts are produced by Megan Whitman and me, Eric Winnick. Our editor is Matt Temkin. Music is by Peril Wolf. The voice of Zabars is Leah Rosensweet. Please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you can, share this episode with your friends. If you're just joining us, welcome. And be sure to subscribe for future episodes. Welcome.